Hello, and welcome to Off the Cuff. I am your host, Chris Martinson, and on this program, every week, we are going to bring you a fascinating guest, where we are going to discuss the economy, energy, or the environment, informally and without a script. Hello, everyone. This week's edition of Off the Cuff features Charles Hughes Smith, author of the blog Of Two Minds, a frequent contributor to Peak Prosperity, and who penned the recent piece on resilience that's now posted at the site, Welcome, Charles. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Yes, Chris. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm wondering, do you have any particular reaction to the State of the Union address? Did anything sort of pop up for you when you heard that? Um, other than the general sense that of, of massive disconnect from reality, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I actually, my first thought was kind of what we used to call shuck and jive. You know, in other words, like kind of saying what a sales pitch that people want to hear, but everybody knows there's a certain, in, you know, insincerity or um, lack of integrity to the whole thing because it's simply impossible. You know, like, I guess the, the key f- points that showed up to me were what everyone else already noticed, which was this isn't going to cost the dime. And then it's like we're going to rebuild 70,000 bridges and then we're going to do this and child care for everybody. And, you know, and it's all like, well, well this isn't going to cost any money. <laughs> it's almost ludicrous. <laughs> you know, I think I've heard that from... Every president in all the State of the Unions, they always have these grand plans that somehow won't cost us a dime, and uh, I'm still waiting for one of those to be true. Maybe one of them will be, I don't know, they'll get it right, but I noticed that immediately on the heels of that, the uh, Society of Engineers, just structural engineers, just couldn't wait and came out, of course, and, and, and noted the vast, vast underfunding that's happening, particularly in our water and sewage systems, uh, also bridges, roadways, things like that. You know, the Department of Transportation, what, $73 billion? And and the engineers are talking trillions just to get these things back up to snuff. And in a recent piece, I, I noted like the problems that Harrisburg is having and, you know, they're just open with sinkholes. And so I have this idea that we might be lucky in some instances, and I think Harrisburg would, would agree, and I think Detroit would agree, and I think Camden would agree. I think in some instances you're lucky if you can actually maintain the infrastructure you've got, let alone achieve some utopian high-tech fantasy world with solar cell paved roadways with nano carbon cars running across them and stuff like that. Yeah, I think there's uh, two points that occur to me in, in just uh listening to your last statement, which is, one of them is that, I forget the name of the historian or the uh, the commentator, but somebody had an apt summary uh, for the United States, which was, it's an insurance company with a, with a large army. <laughs> and I think his point being that, you know, as you and I and most readers know, two-thirds of the money that the federal government borrows and spends is, is basically for entitlements and Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and Department of um, Education and so on. And so um, in that sense, that the gentleman's point was most of the federal government is a form of, of social insurance, even though we... We, a lot of people think that we are an underfunded welfare state compared to, say, Denmark. Statistically speaking, we, we spend about the same amount as the Scandinavian countries on social welfare if we include our private spending, which means like employer-paid health care and, and so on. So, and then we have a huge standing army, which sucks up the other third of the money. And so all these things that Obama is talking about being so wonderful, and we all agree they're, they're fabulous, you know, rebuilding all the bridges and having child care for everyone. The, the, as you and I know, the amount that the federal government spends on these things is um, somewhat, I think it's like 10% of the entire spending for all government other than the entitlement programs and the Pentagon. So 
what we're really talking about is reordering the fundamental priorities of the federal government on a massive scale, which means that you'd have to make tremendous cuts to the military and to entitlement programs, which everybody loves both of those. So you're going to have that. So that's politically impossible. Uh, yeah, I, I can't detect any daylight between either party on the subject of military spending. The, the, the debate seems to be who will uh, promise to spend more than the other person. And, and so really at, at every point in an empire's trajectory, there comes a moment when you have to sort of face reality and decide you can't defend every far-flung territory that you're attempting to protect. And, and the cost of it becomes more burdensome than the returns that come from that. And so I'm, I'm looking at where we are today. And as I look across the, the market landscape, I think the Federal Reserve and, and even Obama mentioned it in the State of the Union speech, very pleased with the recovery in the stock market as if that were indicative that we have turned the corner, things are, are back to where they should be or on the right path. I think Obama was saying that we are getting stronger. And so one of the key signs is, of course, that asset prices seem to have gone up. You know, the stock market's up a lot, but the bond market's up even more. When you look at it uh, over, over the long haul, you look at where corporate bonds are, they're yielding less than dividend payments on equities. It's ridiculous. It's, it's a silly, silly inverted situation. But the summary is this. Every financial asset is, of course, vastly expensive, dare I say, overpriced. And instead of looking at that as, as a sign of something where there's a risk, it's just being trumpeted as, as if this is a strength. This was a, this was a great achievement. I'm like, no, it's not a great achievement. Give me the ability to print several trillion dollars and I will make the prices of all sorts of things go up as well. That's just something I think is not a magic trick. I think it's it's actually something that 2007 and 8 should have taught us is um, risky, potentially. Yeah, I think you've identified a key point that um, most financial commentators seem to be blowing past. And I wrote a piece about it this week, which was you pump in all this money through, uh, not through like checks to households. You know, they're not distributing a trillion dollars by giving everybody 10 grand. They're putting, you know, pouring it into the banks and then it flows into the markets through the people that are closest to the, um, the Fed's money machine. So what you get is the worst of all possible worlds. You get no yield. So those those few of us that actually have savings or that are prudent with our money, we're, we're getting no yield. And yet we're creating bubbles. You know, as you say, we're just repeating the 2007-8 experience, right, where um, there's these gigantic bubbles with really high PEs and um, and high risk. So you have a low-return, high-risk world. I mean, that's, that's the, really the pits. That's the opposite of what you'd like, which is, a, you know, a safe return on, on an actual capital and uh, low-risk opportunities, which there are none. There are none. And you live in Northern California, uh, which I guess there's a resurgent. W would you characterize it as a real estate bubble? What's the dynamic out there? My sister lives out there now, and she described it as multiple bids on, on a single property and, and a real sense of... Um, the way my sister was describing it, it felt like there was that uh, emotional aspect to the process again, which is bubblicious to me. And that's from a distance, that's how it feels. That's, uh, I think, a, a very good a characterization. And what's really striking here is there's an overweening pride. The public um, speakers, you know, the, the governor, um, Jerry Brown, he supposedly balanced the budget with less flim-flam than usual. Uh, and he's just like dripping with pride, and there's so much complacency and confidence that the boom is here again. And 
Some of it is driven by this in- another mania for like social media and mobile app software development. You know that there's like 42,000 jobs got added to Silicon Valley last year. I read, and in San Francisco there are like literally tens of thousands of young people, um, all many of whom have like these startups and they're living in on sofas or they're renting like laundry rooms. In in, mm-hmm. in 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 homes where people are using the laundry, <laughs> and it's, they're paying six hundred bucks for like a little space behind the washing machine for their sleeping bag. That I, that whole thing is crazy. Not only because it's a, obviously a, a mania, but also what is what is the growth factor of mobile apps and social media in terms of like income? Uh, is this going to be a trillion dollar industry? And seems obvious to me, no, because it's basically advertising based. People pay nothing for apps, or they pay a dollar. So the revenue streams from these supposedly hot new businesses are like extremely weak compared to, say, you know, Microsoft or Cisco or Apple or, or companies that are um, generating billions and billions in profits. So, anyways, that's the the ultimate story: is a bubble in technology, which is then leading to a resurgent bubble in real estate, and it's it's crazy. And you go, how long can this last? I, I don't want to make any predictions, but I, I would be hard-pressed to think it can last more than another year or two. Well, I'll, I'll make one prediction. It'll last as long as the Fed's willing to toss $85 billion a month into the financial markets, of which a lot of that admittedly gets round-tripped through the back door into the Fed, goes back there and becomes excess reserves. But hundreds of billions of it actually also ends up out in the, in the marketplace and has to go and go and do things. And uh, I, I've, I've felt this market environment before, and it was 2007. I couldn't believe that uh, many of the home builders and mortgage insurance companies that I was starting to short pretty aggressively in that time frame, that, that there was still this collective idea in the marketplace that home building companies were just going to continue to somehow, you know, two standard deviations above normal building were going to somehow go to three standard deviations above history. And just, it was all going to continue. And uh, the rationales for it got weaker and weaker and weaker. They become faith-based, faith-based articulations. So I've started to notice that same thing here in, in, uh, in the valuation of the larger market, watching the stock market, I've heard people get on TV and say, well, we're really thinking corporate profits are just going to continue to rise from here. And I'm like, oh, well, okay, it's possible, but they're already they're already at 8 or 9% of, of GDP. If they continue with that for very long, eventually corporate profits will consume 100% of GDP. So that's not possible. When does it stop? It has to. And uh, it's hard to come by any sort of rational discussion, I found, when when the bubble is in that expansive phase. And that's... That's my assessment of where we are, but it's it's kind of qualitative. Yeah, I would uh, totally agree. It does feel precisely like 2007, and, and 2008 was, was amazing, too, because we, we all knew that the game was up, and yet the market ran for eight months. And I was, I was shorting um, Fannie Mae, which was still like $60, and, of course, it went to less than a dollar. I was shorting GM at mm-hmm. 50 which and of course it went to you know basically zero. Both of them went bankrupt or the equivalent. I, they didn't budge. All I do is see my um, my puts expire worthless. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. They just stayed elevated month after month. So you wonder is is there a time decay though in this kind of euphoria? Because we're we're obviously much in a much more fragile state. You wonder can it stretch out for another eight months, nine months, ten months, eighteen months like it did in that time frame, or is there a decay factor here? You know. 
Well, decay factor meaning that this time, hopefully, people are a little bit wiser or, you know, edging, positioning themselves a little closer to the exit doors than they were the first time around? Yeah, that and perhaps that uh, the systemic fragility is just a lot higher, even Mm. though the euphoria levels are equally high, that the system is just much more fragile beneath the surface, and so they'll, they'll, it'll take less of a, of a shock, perhaps, to disrupt euphoria. Well, I'll tell you one thing I'm keeping my eye on that I, I'd love to get your views on is, uh, so we have the Prime Minister of Japan, Mr. Abe, has come out and said that he's uh, very interested in seeing the yen get heavily devalued. Uh, congratulations, it's down 13% against the dollar already in 2013. It's down a little over 17% from its former peak, and uh, not a peak, but its its most recent place where it started the long descent from back in October of 2012. And, of course, the euro now. We've got a lot of uh, signs coming out. Front page article, Wall Street Journal today, talking about how the euro's recent strength is really dimming the bright spot of Europe. You know, Germany has got 50% plus in export dependency for its GDP. It's a very high number. And so everybody wants a weaker currency. And you've argued in the past that, in fact, the dollar is going to be uh, the main recipient of strength. Have you, first, for people who are listening, just explain what, what your idea there was. And then uh, what do you see in today's landscape, given all the rumblings about currency wars? Well, I will preface my comments by saying I don't claim any particular expertise in the Mm -hmm. dollar or foreign exchange, um, and it is a really complicated series of players and interlocking dynamics. But I think we can start by just sort of observing that the dollar is the reserve currency, which means that because of American hegemony after World War II, that it was sort of established as this is the currency that all debts and bills can be paid in globally. And it doesn't mean you can't use other currencies, but this is the the dollar is the thing that everybody can count on as a means of payment. Now, it may or may not be something you want to hold, you know, longer than you you've transact your business, but it, it has been the go-to currency as a means of payment. And so that's its, uh, that's its basic role. And so when people say, well, the dollar could collapse or, or whatever, yes, it could. But at least in the current situation, it's still the accepted means of payment, even if you're in Argentina and your, uh, your local currency has been devalued or um, is no longer available, then, you know, dollars still are the global currency. And, and part of why that is is what's called Triffin's Paradox, which is, sounds kind of uh, impressive. But what it means is if you're going to have a currency that, that everyone can use for global trade, you're going to have to have a lot of it. And, and the, basically that means you're going to have to export your money in volume so that there's enough of it sloshing around for everybody to execute their trades. And so that means you've got to be running massive deficits. And, um, you know, Mish is a, a commentator that, that gets it, and a lot of people don't, which is, you know, everybody can't run surpluses. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if somebody has, to, somebody has to have the deficit. And so the U.S. has been providing that deficit, uh, trade deficit, and, and the benefit that it's received is that it, it's exporting all of its dollars. And then, and everybody else has let this go along because, you know, it, it works for them to have a reserve currency that they can use, and they get the surplus, they get the trade surplus. And so it, it's sort of like, you, maybe you could call it a devil's pact. You know, everybody gets something out of this arrangement, which is partly why it's so resilient, despite, you know, what appears to be these huge imbalances, like how can the U.S. run these huge trade deficits? And I always say, are you kidding? 
this is the greatest thing on earth. We print mm-hmm. paper, which is worthless. We ship it overseas. We export it. And then people, you know, give us oil and electronics and, and, and uh, BMWs and all this stuff. It's, it's a, the greatest trade on earth. It's we're fantastic. giving them worthless paper, and we're getting a bunch of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, and for them, it works because, as you say, these are, these are like Germany, Japan, China. All of our trading, our major trading partners are massively dependent on exports. I mean, their economies are, you know, as a percentage of the profits and all that stuff, everybody depends on exports, but they are even more dependent than we are. So in, in, in some, that's kind of like why the dollar might gain is that people still need it. And they don't really need the yen or the euro because it's not a reserve currency. And they only get the yen and euros when they've executed a trade with Japan or the, or the eurozone. And um, they've got, you know, in exchange for selling somebody some good or service, they've got these currencies, you know. But because those guys run surpluses, there's really not a lot of that money floating around. That's kind of the, the, the foundation of my thinking the dollar will continue to rise. People need it. People need it. It has utility. Money has value if it has utility. You can still buy lots of things with dollars. Uh, China's busy trying to buy uh, U.S. companies and Canadian companies right now with their dollars. And so I guess the idea then is for me is um, here's the larger backdrop against that for me is, is that I didn't see us really having a housing bubble. I saw us having a very large credit bubble of which some froth on the side was this thing called the housing bubble. I believe we also have a student loan bubble and other bubbles. But those are really symptoms of the main thing, which is that we've been increasing debts and credit creation at a rate um, almost twice as fast as real GDP growth and even faster than nominal GDP growth. It's, it's extraordinary. And so that's largely what the United States uh, and I submit the, all the countries are really trying to do is, is get back on that former bandwagon because it worked reasonably well. And it's kind of fun when you can borrow it basically twice the, the rate of your underlying earnings growth. And so now that that whole system is sort of um, it, it's run its course, Japan really doesn't have any other mechanisms open to it at this point besides trying to devalue its currency. Greece would love to devalue its currency. It's an absolute depressionary freefall. The data coming out of there and the anecdotes coming out of there are really actually truly horrifying. We contrast that with Iceland, which did manage to go ahead and devalue its currency and dug out pretty promptly, amongst doing other things like you know charging their prime minister and putting bankers in jail and all that. Uh, but But they managed to... Uh, the, the tried and true mechanism in the past was when you really got out of balance, the way you rebalanced was your currency took the shots. And now everybody kind of wants to devalue and you can't, but everybody's trying. So how does this play out in your mind? Well, as you say, given the backdrop of, of everybody's creating way too much credit, then um, as the saying is, it's a race to the bottom in the sense that if we say every currency's a claim on the national wealth of the country that issues the currency, then um, we can kind of say, well, which country is is devout is um, got less to back up their currency, and which ones have more? And it's of course a relative game, because of course all currencies are falling against gold and oil. But it seems that I think that underneath the surface, I think China is printing even faster than the U.S. I mean, there's, it's hard to tell because they have a much larger shadow banking system than even we do, or equivalently large and equivalently opaque. 
And then Japan, of course, is going all all in on the, their printing. And then I think beneath the surface, the eurozone is also creating massive quantities of of credit. And so it may be that despite the Fed's best efforts, the U.S. may be lagging in that race to to um, destroy their currency. And so that's where the dollar could gain. I think relatively that you know as a claim on like the whole national wealth. Japan's a pretty iffy thing, as far as I can see, and so I, I wouldn't want to say the yen is worth a lot because Japan's economy is is booming and strong and everything's great there. It's all like no way. I mean, it it could easily fall in half, and the euro should fall in half. It should be probably, in my mind, it should be about seventy cents, not not a dollar thirty five. And so the I think the dollar could gain over the next say two years if there's a crisis. You know that. Japan falls off the cliff, say, or the the eurozone falls off the cliff, and there's political crises and and uh, credit disruptions and so on. And the dollar would be the the last remaining safe um, safe haven, and so it could gain kind of sharply over the short term. Well, as 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 I think you've often said, every fiat currency is like a claim uh, to the to future income and and future value. And of course, if the value you're creating your GDP. Is stagnant, and then you you triple the amount of money you have floating around. <laughs> well, obviously, each unit of currency is only worth a third of what it was before, and and so you can't really get away from that dynamic. You know, I mean, if if you're creating money and credit at a rate that's a, a lot faster than you're creating um, uh, goods and services uh, in the real world, then uh, eventually your currency is going to reflect that. And so we know that's going to happen, and it's just a matter of how long is the timeline. And so, you know, the dollar could go up 50% if there was a global crisis, but that's not going to say that's a, that's a trajectory that you can bet on beyond the crisis, you know. This is the thing that's, that's driving me a little bit nuts is everywhere I look, I see that there are structural impediments to growth. I think that the growth that we enjoyed 70s, 80s, 90s, all of those periods, 2000, early, that growth seems to be hamstrung, at least in the OECD countries for a lot of reasons. But, you know, primary one being that we now have structurally high oil prices, all the blather notwithstanding. The, uh, if oil ever falls below $80 a barrel, you can pretty much just kiss the tight oil coming out of the Bakken play goodbye until we get oil back over 80 a barrel. And so we have structurally high oil prices, and uh, it seems to me that we have lower growth than we would like. Potentially, you know, at some point, we get to even negative growth, if I can use the term. And none of the none of the actual uh, fiscal or monetary policies that I'm aware of in the in the Western countries in Japan, that's not part of their plan. We'll call that Plan B. They don't have that. They only have Plan A in the books right now. And Plan A is we're going to get back to the same style of growth that we formulated all of our ideas, understanding, ideologies, and institutions around. And that's it. I see the Fed just pushing and pushing and pushing to recreate what we used to have without any apparent inkling that. That might not be possible, and if it's not, what they're doing is, as you said, they're just piling up claims against a future that will actually be smaller. I think that's an excellent summary, and um, that's why I've been very. Um, I, I tend to call the Fed like a cargo cult because it mm-hmm. literally, to me, is as disconnected from reality as an absurd cargo cult in which people are basically dancing around waving dead chickens hoping that the dance is going to create, restore all that wealth that used to be coming in on all those nice cargo ships. And so, yeah, it's really a disconnect. And it's interesting. Um, 
you know, uh, historians of capitalism, one of the things they've found in looking back at various cycles of growth and then decay and then collapse is that when the expansionary stage is at its last stage, then capital flows to like speculative, mobile, financial stuff. And, and, and if you look at the U.S. from like say about 1982 on, it's clear that for the last 25 to 30 years, most of the U.S. growth has come from this kind of financialization. And so if we look, if we look at these long cycles, we go, well, we're at the end of this whole phase of growth uh, because it's, now we rely on, on financial gimmickry and financial trickery, basically, to, um, for our so-called growth. That, that obviously is unsustainable, and that's usually the stage just before things collapse. And I, I don't see any, um, any reason to doubt that that's the, where we are in, in that stage of organic growth and where credit actually does boost production of, of real goods and services to the point where um, leverage and credit are simply propping up stagnant systems that are um, about to implode. And I think that's right where we are. You know, I have a lot of criticisms of uh, Greenspan. And one of them was his constant, he, he just sort of flip-flopped and focused on, on things that he thought were, were relevant to help support the idea that he could just, you know, continue to shove money into the, into the maw of the financial systems. Uh, but one of his, his things that I, I thought he really missed the mark on was he, he fell in love with this idea of productivity growth. And some productivity growth is absolutely real, and, and I think it's wonderful, and it's, it's uh, one of the reasons that we can enjoy getting more, you know, in terms of purchasing power from our activities, manufacturing. There's certain things that really uh, they are, are great. But the way we catalog GDP is we put it all into one giant pot and then we have a numerator and a denominator and we divide it up and you know the resulting fraction that, that's left over, we might say is part of that's due to productivity and we measure it. And the thing that drove me nuts is there are financial companies in that in both the numerator and the denominator. And they were, of course, just pyramiding and leveraging on top of prior gains. And that stuff comes, it's easy come, easy go. And to call it productivity, I don't think is exactly right. It's, you know, productivity in figuring out how to issue better tranches of CDOs and subprimes is not the same as productivity in figuring out a improved manufacturing process for turning ethylene into a, a valued uh, product by Dow. And uh, Greenspan just kept going along, like saying, look, we have this productivity miracle going on, and it's due to this thing called the internet. I don't think he had a clue what he was really talking about there. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, you know, the, the theme of, of, of your piece that was published today on peak prosperity, to me, is it's all about diminishing returns. And you, um, you explained that we're in a diminishing returns for investment in, in energy and and in credit you know and and that is so true those are the the underlying drivers of what's going to happen but i think it's also true of of what people claim to be investments you know for, uh, we all know like healthcare that he, one of my friends was helping his friend who had to get a um, some sort of test done the test for a biopsy was $70,000 now that took about, I guess, a 20-minute visit and, you know, a, a little bit of lab work. And it's all like, well, does anybody realize that's an entire year's pay? I mean, and, and a very, actually a pretty good year's pay. Uh -huh. And that was like simply one test of dozens that this one patient had. And so nobody asks if that's productive use of our money. Uh, you know, and obviously it's not because that test is probably available in, in China or someplace for um, $70 or 700 at the most. And so... It's um, so much of our natural, uh, of our treasure is being dumped in things which are clearly diminishing return or they're already in negative return. We keep dumping money in and we're getting less and less out. 
and the military spending is like that too. I mean, I'm I'm always ranting about the F-35 Lightning, which mm. costs like 200 million plus per aircraft, which is like six times more than the top line F-18. And and you go, well, is this plane six times better? Well, it's it, that's not possible. It it might be five percent better, but it costs six times more. <laughs> that, that's like a classic of diminishing returns, and that's how we get to a point where it's no longer affordable. Well, and that, that brings us all the way back to, you know, when I was hearing Obama talk about we're going to be stronger, and it's not going to cost us anymore, and we're going to get a whole lot more done, and uh, we're going to be energy independent. And there were a lot of words in there. Uh, it's not really clear to me that uh, the people in D.C. have uh, any good sense yet of the nature of the predicament that's facing us. Or if they do, they're doing a really good job of hiding it. Because I can't, I can't detect it yet anywhere. And I, I have the sense that we have another crisis coming at some point. And when we get there, it's going to be baffling and confusing and frightening because it's going to be happening for all the wrong reasons. And what little faith was re-bestowed in the Fed for their alleged omnipotence will be shredded. And... <laughs> You know, and we just wash, rinse, repeat. But, you know, 20 years from now, we all look back and go, how did we have so much then? Where did it go? What happened? Yeah, and let's let's throw um, a timeline in here if we can. I would, I'm going to go out on a limb here since it's just the peak prosperity crowd, and I know you'll all forgive me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. But how about June 2013? How about the, that by the end of the second quarter, the wheels start falling off? I, I, and that's just... I don't have any basis for that other than my sort of sense that the system's a lot more fragile and I don't think they um, can push it out any more than about four um, and a half years since they, um, quote, solved everything in January 2009, you know, with QE1 and all that stuff. So I, I don't think they can extend the bull market past about four and a half years. So that would be like this June. All right. Well, that's that's a, a date. And of course, that might comport well if we uh, get into the sequestration, the so-called sequestration battles. Uh, I'm going to wait until we're about 10 minutes before that's actually going to hit before I get too involved in wondering what's going to happen there. But if the U.S. federal government does, for whatever reason, decide to cut spending, that will have immediate top-line impacts on GDP. I don't think it'll take much of a recession to really uh, you know, take the, the wheels are already operating, I think, on two out of five lug nuts. So I think if we remove one more, probably won't be a good thing at that point. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to be laughing, but I mean, it's almost <laughs> like the level of unreality that you and I are discussing and that, um, you know, the, the listeners, they see for themselves. It's, it's almost comedic. And, and that's yeah. sad in a way, but that's that's the way it is. Yeah. Well, I, I feel fortunate that I've seen this uh, act before. I've seen this play. I understand what's going on here. So uh, I just have. I'm just going to be patient and watch, and I'll, I'll watch for the end of June. In the meantime, I'm going to make myself more resilient and continue on on that front. So, with that, we're out of time today. Charles, thank you so much for helping out with Off the Cuff this week. My pleasure, Chris. Always good to hear your views. Same. All right, we'll talk to you soon, I hope. Okay, thanks.